Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Shade Podcast. I'm Sung. And I'm Amanda. And we are going to be rereading Aragon yes. by Christopher Paolini. We really are. So, first of all, I thought we could introduce ourselves and our relationship to Aragon. Yes. So, if you want to go first, Amanda. Okay. Um, yeah, so I read Aragon in the fifth grade. Remember, there was a boy in my class who was reading it, and I don't know what, I don't remember what he said, but he, whatever he said really compelled me to want to read it. And yeah, I really liked it. For a long time, I wanted to visit Montana because of these books. And I, when I was thinking back on it, I really thought like, oh, this was like my little brief dragon phase. Cause you know, I had like all the phases. I went through like a horse girl phase, a, uh, a wolf girl phase, and then the dragon phase. But when I was reading it, I'm like, well, maybe I didn't have a dragon phase. Maybe this was really more of a continuation of my elf phase. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, at the same time, I was reading, like, Dragon Rider by Cornelia Funka. Love that one. It's it's a really good book. If you haven't read it, it's probably... It's a really good book. I really appreciate that how much Christopher Paolini is affected by elves in the same way I am. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think I read this right around the same time, around fifth grade. I was probably like 10 or 11 or something. I read it with my family. I think we listened to the audiobook and wow, we just became obsessed. Like my sister was the shade one year for Halloween. It was a very <laughs> memorable costume. Uh, she bought like red tinted glasses oh because gosh. she couldn't wear red contacts because she was like nine. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that was, that was amazing. And then I read Eldest, and I did not read any of the books after that. Uh, what about you? Yes, yeah, so I have read them all. Um, so I think Aragon and Eldest, they, they were kind of officially published, like, right back to back. Mm -hmm. So I read them both in fifth grade. And then, um, there was a, a break for, I think I read Brzinger and Inheritance in high school, right after they came out. And I don't remember what Brzinger's about anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I've read them, so. Okay, I get so to you're try. going into this with full knowledge of the series. I am. Yes, I know how it ends. And I have no idea what happens after Eldest, because I think there was just too long of a break, and I probably lost interest uh, by the time the next book came out. So that's kind of, of us and our relationship to Aragon. Let's talk about the cultural context of these books. Yeah, so um, I did some, feel free to interject. I did a little bit of research. I wouldn't say it was the most in-depth research, research I could have done. But so Aragon um, was self-published in 2002 by Christopher Paolini. When he started writing it when he was 15, and he had no intention of ever publishing it when he started. Um, I mean, Aragon is essentially him. It was, um, so the books were him basically writing, like, what he was playing when he was outside. So he just wanted to record, like, these ideas he had. And then in when he, four years later, when he was 19, um, he was encouraged by his parents to, to publish it. And then, so from what I understand, how is this possible? He was homeschooled. Yes. And his mom was a Montessori teacher, so he was allowed to kind of do whatever he wanted in terms of pursuing his interests. He also mentions being quite isolated in rural Montana, and his sister was pretty much his only playmate at the time. 
And so then in, in 2002, 2003, he starts traveling to promote this book, like going to libraries and, and bookstores and basically just like giving them this book and being like, please take this and sell it. <laughs> and then in 2000, well, somewhere in there, uh, editor at Knopf, um, his son, they go on vacation. Wait, they- hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I did read about this. This was Carl Hyacin. Oh. The author of Hoot. I believe it was his nephew found okay, the nephew. book. Okay, nephew. Yes. And after that, uh, Carl brought it to the attention of Knopf. And at that point, Christopher Paolini had visited about 135 schools and libraries <laughs> across the country, which is pretty impressive. No, I was going to add on to that. Um, okay. Yeah, he had a I uniform. Mean, he had a uniform. I didn't, what? <laughs> yes. I didn't know that. He wore like a little hat. That's adorable. <laughs> and kind of dressed as a, a, a wee medieval man. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, so when they published, so I, as far as I know, I don't, I, I mean, I'm sure you can get the first edition, which is the edition that was self-published. Um, I didn't really look that much into it. But um, the book lost about 50 pages in Knopf published it so presumably they took out a lot of times with entry level like our new writers um they you know tend to over explain things so presumably they shortened it for conciseness all the montana description probably yes probably um and then in 2006 do you have anything to add before 2006 yeah uh it became a bestseller and by the age of 19 christopher pellini was a new york times bestseller Impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> I think as a child, I definitely saw him as a somewhat aspirational figure. Oh, 100%. I was like, I have to beat him. I have to publish a book <laughs> before, I'm, <laughs> before I'm 19. And now we're... Still, little, let's not talk about okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, in 2006, they released the Aragon movie. Um, have you seen it, Song? I have seen it. I did see it in theaters. Same. It's pretty terrible. It's not good. Um, so <laughs> I think the plan is we're going to watch that after we read all the books. That sounds exciting. It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> um, and then in 2011, I thought this was a fun fact. Um, the Guinness Book of World Records recognizes Christopher Paolini as the youngest author of a best-selling book series, which I'm not sure how they make that. They just figure that out. But um, again, pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, he drew all of the maps and the cover art for the first publication himself. Wait, is that the art on the book still? No, no. Okay, uh, okay the first art, and actually they have a picture. Oh, it's oh, that's it? right across from the uh, title page. Okay. It's just a picture of Safira's eye. Yeah. And he drew that. And then he also drew the map, which so, is at the beginning of the book. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, so basically, um, I think every book has like a picture of an eye in it at the beginning. I bet so that's all him. Probably is. Do we want to talk about um, Christopher Paolini as a person? I know we kind of did already. We've mentioned him, but we can talk about his influences, yes. maybe. I dug on, I went onto his website um and quoted him um there's a, there's a couple different sources out there but he cites and i don't know i don't know if i agree with him but <laughs> he cites folklore the brothers grin beowulf nordic sagas and the aeneid as his um sources of reference for aragon Hmm. Yeah. Um, however, if you dig farther, he talks about his favorite books as a kid, which to me feels like a more accurate 
what what was really influencing him. Okay, okay. Um, so he talks about Bruce Coville, who wrote a book that I've never read called Jeremy Thatcher, Dragon Hatcher, Frank Herbert, uh, who wrote Dune. Okay, um, you can kind of see that in like the chosen one. Yeah. Um, and then Anne McCaffrey, who wrote Dragons of Pern. That one's Obviously, pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, Jane Yolen, she's written like a million books. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't read any of them, so I didn't couldn't pick one out. Mm-hmm. Brian Jacques, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Okay. Brian Jacques, who wrote Redwall. And then E.R. Edison, who wrote The Worm, The Worm of Ouroboros. Haven't read that one either. And then this one I have read, um, which is David Eddings on the book, The Belgariad. 100% is influencing this book. <laughs> yes. It, it, I mean, the whole idea of a, a chosen one growing up in isolation and having to rise to the the challenge. It's all there. And then he referenced Ursula Le Guin um, in A Wizard of Earthsea. Interesting. Yeah. And this feels... He doesn't mention Tolkien, which I think is fascinating because... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's 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 really it's, obvious. It's really there the whole time within like the first page. Yeah. So, I, I to me, I can see the Bel the Belgariad, uh, Dune, Dragons of per- Dragon Riders of Pern, mm-hmm. and then obviously Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously. <laughs> so, <laughs> other sources reference that it, Tolkien is an influence, but it's not on his own website. Okay, Christopher. Strange to me. So the first line of the prologue is, Wind howled through the night, carrying a scent that would change the world. Which is kind of a cool first line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the Shades whole thing is like smelling things, I guess. Yeah, I I didn't remember that. But yeah, he has a thing with um, scents. And then the Urgles, I I guess we should take it step by step. The Urgles are basically orcs. They're yes, but they're but they kind of are they small? They seem small. I got the idea that they were kind of huge ripped guys with horns okay, on their heads. So okay. And the Shade seems like the worst manager of all time. Yeah, he's pretty terrible. <laughs> he keeps telling them like, no, you can't rest. You have to look for this uh this elf. Yeah. And I thought it was okay, so I think they describe him like early on as, as almost looking like a normal person, except having crimson hair and eyes. Which to me does not look anything like a normal person. That's kind of a freaky description. <laughs> I had always pictured him looking like some kind of anime boy, I think, which <laughs> might be why me and my sister were so obsessed with him. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of a dick. Um, so he shows up in the prologue. The prologue in my e-reader is like two pages. Yeah, it's not very um, long. So he shows up. So there's three elves. Um, oh, they get ambushed. Yes, they they, they wi- ride out of Lord of the Rings on these white horses, which feels like a, you know, if you're riding in the night, maybe you want black horses, but what do I know? Um, but they ride out of the night. And, and she looks exactly like Arwen from really, the first yes. Lord of the Rings movie. And they are, like, hot. Like, that is, like, all the description you get is that they are extremely hot. <laughs> like, it's like they're, like, uh, like okay, one of them is going to become an important character, but um, I'm trying not to say her name right now. <laughs> but um, so the female elf, no, the whole time, the whole description is like, she is beautiful. Like she has these angular features that make her so beautiful. Did I mention she's beautiful? <laughs> There's a line at the end that says her beauty held no sway over the shade, although it would affect like any mortal man, which yeah. is like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the asexual representation. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, that is the whole point you're supposed to get out of this chapter. And again, like, on some level, I can really appreciate this because I also thought the elves in Lord of the Rings were very, very hot. <laughs> and I just... I. I think as a child, I, I mean, I remember adoring the elves and like being like, I want to be the elves. Yeah. And, yeah. and yes, I, to, for me, this is you, the shade was your character. The L are the girl elf in this scene was like my character. <laughs> I wanted to be hers. I wanted to be her so bad. They're carrying this stone. A stone. And they Correct. get ambushed. And they get just completely their asses kicked. Yeah, just immediately. Like, there's, like, they, you, it's kind of funny because later on we're going to learn that these elves are, like, extremely effective fighters. (laughs) And they just They just beef it. Promptly get their ass beat. Like, like, two seconds. Like, this whole, I mean, this whole chapter is, like, two, three pages, and it's just immediately over Devastating. For them. Yeah. So the there's two male elves, and they just kick the bucket in, within, like, a half a second of showing up on screen. And then the girl elf, she does a little bit better um, before getting smoted. Um, yeah, the shade kind of shoots Sith yeah, lightning. Yeah, he's red, is it, it's red lightning, it's right? It's red lightning. Yeah, that's pretty inspirational. And he, so she, she makes it a little bit farther, and then also is smoted by the shade well she gets captured right well it's not clear at this okay, point it's not clear. she's it's not she's clear. out she's um, out of the game um, but the stone disappears and the yes, shade is so, really upset about yeah it. so before he can um hit her with the lightning she manages to cast a spell and send the, the rock somewhere and then we move to the first chapter we do okay so okay i so we begin with well, this whole chapter really is Aragon and he's hunting a deer. This is another very short chapter. Um, he's trying to hunt a deer. Um, he hasn't, he's been out there for three days. Does that sound right? Sure. Yeah. Three, four days. He's been out there trying to hunt. Hasn't had any success. And finally he finds this herd of deer. One of them is limping and he, so he's getting ready to shoot it. And this rock blasts from the sky <laughs> I really like in the, my kind of initial reaction was, um, I really like a lot of the characterization of the mountains. It's the spine. The spine, yeah. Yeah, and they're these um, kind of haunted mountains. Yes, I'm really into it. Um, I think we get a little bit more of it in the next chapter. Okay. But we, but essentially what we learn here about the spine is that it's a dangerous mountain range, and basically everyone but Aragon is afraid to go into it. Because he is... He's special. He's very daring. Yes. And Aragon is described as having dark hair here. This is, I mean, this is where we're meeting him. I guess we should say that. I mean, we're meeting Aragon for the first time in this chapter. Um, he has dark hair and dark eyes. If you look at a picture of Christopher Paolini, <laughs> which we are doing right now, um, you will see that he also has dark hair and, and dark eyes, yeah. which I mean, a lot of people do. But I do. I really do think as the story goes on, it is going to be very clear that this is Christopher Paolini. <laughs> it's cute. It's cute. It's, it's fine. He was 15. Yeah. We can't, I'm not going to fault him. Yeah. And so then Aragon, he decides, well, better go see what just happened. He, he missed the deer shot. And he finds a, a what is described as a, a blue stone. It is unnaturally smooth, um, almost as if it's been polished. And it is 12 inches long. 
which is it's pretty, pretty sizable. It's pretty big. Yeah. And they don't really make that. They make it sound small. I feel like. Mm. And it's also, they do say it's lighter than it seems like it should be. Okay. It's it's a pretty big rock mm-hmm. that just fell out of the sky. Mm-hmm. I, my initial read when I was a child, did not realize this rock was this big. In my mind, I always pictured like something you might hold, <laughs> feel to hold in your hands. See, I'm thinking of the movie, so they did make it pretty big. In the yeah, movie. I do recall this. Aragon sort of suspects the the stone is in some way magic um, and seems to be somewhat aware that it's potentially dangerous. Um, but he takes it anyway, assuming that he can, if he, at least if he didn't catch a deer, he can sell this and make money off of it. I did find his weird calmness about all this. He seems very like, okay. We're Nonplussed. Just, yeah, I, I did find that a little strange but overall we're just meeting this dude and kind of getting not much out of this chapter i guess but (laughs) what do you think of the descriptions of the mountains see i kind of like them yeah i thought so too you could definitely tell that uh this kid was running around in rural montana i i think after reading these first few chapters it is where this book really shines is in its descriptions of its places yeah there was a line, I was actually noting the lines as I went that I really liked. Um, there was a line that went, A brooding mist crept along the valley's floor, almost thick enough to obscure his feet. Aww. And I I just, I really like how alive everything feels. Like, it's not just a mist, it's a brooding mist. Mm-hmm. And the spine, I mean, in the, the next chapter, the spine has a personality, essentially. And personality I, of gonna eat you. Yeah, and I love it. Or and so, or like an, uh, an almost like an untamed animal. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what it feels like, and I I just really enjoy that. But I just want I want I could read a book where this guy just walks around in the spine, and like that's the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then we do get to Carvajal. Yes, Carvajal, where Aragon's family lives just outside of the town, sort of. They're farmers. Yes, so th- that's in chapter two, yes. um, so which is called Palankar Valley, um, which kind of sets us up for like our initial setting. I really love the first few pages of these chapters where we're just walking through the spine. I, I, I like the description of the air was fresh, sweet, and very cold. Ice edged the streams and small pools were completely frozen over. Like, it's just such a nice little, yeah. like, of a crisp, cool morning, you yeah. know, right before winter. And then, I, I, I'm just going to read my quotes that I've, I've pulled out. All right, beginning. all right. Um, but then there, he's, he's walking, he's walking back, and he's walking on this trail, because this is so uninhabited, that he's walking the game trail, um, which is the trail, you know, made by animals. And he describes it as, the rough game trail was faintly worn and in places non-existent. Because it had been forged by animals, it was oft- it often backtracked and took long detours. Yet for all its flaws, it was still the fastest way out of the mountains. Which is just such a nice little description of, like, just this place that I loved the little, like, kind of backstory hints we're getting here. Like, the little subtle... Like, they, they talk about how King Galbatorix, which is our first time hearing about him, mm-hmm. there's a rumor that he tried to send his army up into the spine and that half of his army disappeared in the spine. And that's why he's never managed to conquer this area and why it remains roughly like pretty, or remains pretty free. Okay. 
I, I just, I liked all these little details about the spine right at the beginning when he's walking through it. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And I felt like we lost a bit of that sense of place once we got to Carvajal. Yes. I feel like there's this, we have this nice little, like, like when we see Carvajal from when Aragon's walking down. Yes. And you, we really see the whole valley. Uh-huh. We get this really good, this really clear image of of what Carvajal looks like, um, and I think it's it's nice how he sets it up. It's pretty clever that we kind of see it front through his eyes. This doesn't feel like info dumping, really, but it it feels like we're just seeing what he's seeing. Um, so we learn while he's walking into town, Carvajal is an isolated town uh, situated in Palancar Valley and surrounded by mountains and next to the Anora River. It's a small farming town. Um, the buildings are all log. Their closest neighbor is a town called Theronsford. And the only other, and it's the only, Theronsford is the only other town in Palancar Valley. And very few people come through this town, the exception of merchants and trappers. And you definitely get the impression that they don't come through often because yeah. here's Aragon trying to find food for his family. And the only place he can go is the town butcher. Yeah. Because he he failed to catch any game because they got scared away by the big stone explosion. Yes. And this is where, again, like we were saying, I feel like this is where the book kind of loses some energy. <laughs> this dialogue is so rough. Okay. So basically, let's, let's go through this interaction. Aragon tries to give the stone to the butcher Sloane. And... At first, Sloane seems interested, but when Aragon mentions he got it in the spine, Sloane's like, oh no, get out of my shop. Like, no way. And his daughter comes in and fights with Sloane about it, and then Horst, the blacksmith, comes in and says that he'll pay for Aragon's food in place of him, in exchange for Aragon helping him out in the shop later after his his son goes off uh, somewhere or something. And we kind of get a little bit more backstory on Aragon's family. Yeah. His brother, Roran, has a thing for Katrina, Sloane's daughter. I'm sure this won't be important later. (laughs) Not at all. And Aragon seems really hesitant about taking Horst's charity until uh, Horst says, oh, you know, you can pay me back for this by working for me. Yeah. Because we get the impression that Aragon's uncle Garo is really opposed to anybody giving them food, even though they're uh, quite poor farmers, just subsistence farmers scraping together a living. Yeah. This kind of part kind of made me roll my eyes. This, yeah, it's just very superficial. There's not, I mean, it feels like we're getting these characters and we're having them put into piles. So Sloan, bad. Katrina, pretty good. And then, what's his name? Horst? Horst? Good. And, like, there's just, like, these, like, we're just getting these people and, like, this very... And, and Sloane is just mean. The second Aragon walks through the door, like, there's no... This guy has no redeeming qualities, which, I mean, he doesn't have to. But it's just the most boring version of a villain <laughs> that you can read. And they just go back and forth for for so long, just arguing back and forth about food and then the stone and then food again. And... It's, I mean, this is, takes up probably, like, half the chapter. Yeah. And, and he just leaves with some meat. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know. It just feels like we're setting this guy up 
in the first chapter where he's setting up like this important setting, all these important, trying to get all these important details out. And I don't think Sloan is a super important, I mean, he comes up again, but I, I mean, he's just a guy. <laughs> this is a story about saving the world and we're having this argument about meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably would have preferred it if he'd just gone home and then fought with Garrett. Yeah, I mean, this. I wouldn't. I, I don't think it's not ne- not necessarily a bad scene because I mean, it is setting up things that are going to happen with like Katrina and like all that. But I don't think it needed to be nearly as long as it was. And I think it does set up like you know, like oh, they're kind of outsiders in this town, which is important. Yeah, yeah. But. <sighs> Just, well, and then we get a rehash of that conversation kind of when he goes home, he goes home yeah. because he recounts the entire thing to Garrow, Uncle yeah. Garrow. And, and so, yeah, so he leaves and go and okay. <laughs> Christopher, Aragon walks 10 miles home. <laughs> and, and Christopher, I mean, you get the idea it's far away. But to me, if on foot, far away is... I mean, that could be five miles. (laughs) They're 10 miles out of this town. And so, like, and I just, I don't know if that was intentional, if Christopher Paolini just was too young to really know how, like, how, I mean, that's a good, I mean, what, you can walk, yeah, how far can you walk in an hour? Like, maybe, maybe three miles? I I will say, one time my sister and I got lost (laughs) in a park on the wrong trail. We did end up walking about about nine miles and it took us like half a day yeah i mean i would think if you were really booking it and had weren't carrying a bunch of supplies like aragon presumably is yeah he's got like a whole bunch of meat and weapons yeah he's he has all the stuff he's been using to survive out in the spine for several days on him and a 12 foot stone no sorry 12 inch stone (laughs) (laughs) 12 foot stone yeah, so, I mean, he's not, so, I mean, let's say- He is encumbered. He is encumbered. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, if you were walking fast, I think you could probably walk 10 miles in three to four hours. <laughs> and I just, I honestly don't know if Christopher Paolini was aware of how far of a distance that was. Um, I think he just wanted to make it clear that, you know, they're on top of being isolated in this this town being isolated they're even further isolated um they are out in bumfuck nowhere (laughs) and this valley is apparently huge to be able to walk 10 miles outside of your town and still be closer to palancar or no Carvajal, to, to walk 10 miles outside of your town and still be closer to Carvajal than you are to Theronsford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean... I mean, okay, keep in mind this guy's from Montana. Yes, he might be doing a lot of walking every day. Montana is huge, I think. I've never been, have you? No. Okay. It's tragically. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't think we mentioned that actually up front, but Christopher Paolini is... He has said in interviews and on his own website that the geography in this book is based off of Montana. Um, which is, I mean, it makes sense because he's just writing what he sees, but yes. So, and he, and we did say he was spending a lot of time outside. Do you think he was shredded? Oh God. <laughs> just like this, this was just normal for him. Walking <laughs> yeah, 10 miles every day to town. Probably. I just remember when I was a kid, um, not a kid in high school, we read my Antonia, 
And they, the, the book, if you haven't read that book, basically it's about these people who live in a rural town and live, are farmers. And so they even, out, they live far away from the town. So mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. a journey to get into town. And I think that in that book, they're only five miles outside <laughs> of town. And it's an ordeal to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's five miles there and back. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy, if he wants to go to town, that means walking 20 miles round trip. Jesus One Christ. One day. Well, they do have a horse, don't they? They do. They, they have two two horses, I think they say. Yeah. Um, and they do give them names. They do give them names. I did appreciate that. You love when a horse has a name. You love a good horse name. <laughs> let me find their names. Yeah, let's, let's, um, let's showcase their names. We got to respect this and appreciate it. Uh, they couldn't afford a pig. Okay, the horses' names are Burka and Brach. Good. That's B-R-U-G-H. I like Burka. Yeah. It's kind of cute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they also have some chickens and a cow. So, yeah. I yeah. guess they don't have names, though. That's okay. No, a lot of people don't name those. Okay. They eat them. Yeah. That's fine. But you gotta name your horse. You gotta name Everyone your horse. Everyone names... Does it, no, horses always have names. They should. So anyway. Th- that's about where we end. He just goes home. Well, we didn't talk about the, the conversation between... Garrow. Garrow and... and Ar- so, I mean, I, we don't really have to cover this in a lot of detail. Because, I mean, a lot of this is just rehashing the conversation that happened between him and Sloan. But we do learn quite a bit about Garrow here. He and I, I think the book almost starts to redeem itself here because I think Garrow is a lot more interesting than any of the people we met in town. Mm-hmm. Um, but so we we get to this house. He is described as Garrow is described as looking like a man who was partially mummified before it was discovered he was still alive. Jesus Christ! Yes. Are you okay, dude? Um, and then he is described. He's described as rail thin, hungry looking. Um, This is repeated a lot. They keep describing him as looking hungry. (laughs) And then wearing clothes that hung like rags on his thin frame. And he's kind of, he is pissed at Aragon when he comes back without, well, with meat, but not meat that he caught, but meat that he bought or got for free. Mm -hmm. Um, He is, so we learned that he, uh, at some point his wife died. And after that, he, he moved his whole family out to this abandoned house that had been abandoned for about 50 years. And, and he just basically shut himself off from the rest of the town. And so we get the, this, and he's me. He's so pissed at Aragon when he first gets home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we get this kind of image of a, uh, just a berat, bedraggled grief stricken man who is just angry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first you don't really like him. And then at, at right at the end of the chapter, he kind of softens and and like I mean it becomes clear that he he does love Aragon despite everything. And so I like this more complex characterization of this guy who is just not doing well. <laughs> and 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 it's kind of a nice contrast to Sloan, who is just mean, 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 mean. Like we have this guy who's you're like, oh, this is just Sloan again. Yeah. But then he he softens at the end of the chapter and is like, go to, go get some sleep. You need to rest. Yeah. And and like clearly loves his his nephew. But we don't learn what happened to Aragon's parents. We don't. All we know is that he is being raised by his uncle and lives with his his cousin i'm sure that's not important no not really at all at any point (laughs) 
And I, I do want to, again, I think this chapter has, a, the end of this chapter also has some really nice description. So the description of the house was my favorite. Mm-hmm. Again, it just feels like this living creature. It's described as, okay, so here's the description of the house. A lantern flickered on a wood table so, so old that the grain stood up in tiny ridges like a giant fingerprint. Near the wood stove were rows of cooking utensils tacked onto the wall with homemade nails. A second door opened to the rest of the house. Uh, the floor was made of boards polished smooth by years of tramping feet. He was serving cottage core before that was even a thing. He really was. It does really feel like a really red wally description, which I know yeah. he he um, mentioned as an, yeah. as one of his favorite authors when he was doing this. So, no, but I just really like how lived in this house feels that even though it's old and, um, you know, run down, there is some sort of like warmth and love in this house. Mm-hmm. And it's just, a, it's theirs, you know, it feels like they're like a place that they have worn into. Yes. And that's, I mean, is, do you have anything else to add about this chapter? I don't think so. Besides, I was going to ask based on this chapter do you have any book recommendations (laughs) maybe okay so i was thinking about this and i so okay the belgariad would be one of them yes um it has a very similar um setup and it's a lot of fun so it's about i don't know have you ever read the belgariad okay so it is about a boy and he's being raised by his aunt Mm-hmm. on a farm and you don't say yes in, in relative isolation fast forward some of it he finds out he's the chosen one and he goes on this journey which they all do um but the fun part of these books is that he has to kind of there's a, a prophecy he's following and he has to find these people that are going to help him complete the prophecy and so he ends up traveling with this party of people and they're a lot of fun Okay. They're a very colorful cast of characters. Um, that being said, these are, and I read these as a child, so I can't really speak to like a more critical review of this, <laughs> but um, they were written a while ago. And I do think there are probably some issues with how the women are. You know, um, I was kind of noticing that in this, these chapters. Yes, the women in Aragon, I don't think are... Um, Feminist icons. <laughs> but it's the throwaway line in uh, chapter two that's wives scurried to fetch their husbands, scolding them for being late. Yeah, and I mean, even our introduction to Katrina, she's not the most, she's not a, um, she's not a very strong person. It seems. She's, she's a nice girl. She's nice, pretty. Nice, pretty. Yeah, she's very pretty and she's very nice. That is what we learn about Katrina. It makes me sad because I get the feeling Arya... The Arya, um, one of the elves that's going to show up. I get the feeling she's not great either, and I loved her so much. <laughs> but, um, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come we'll get to there. it. But um, just read that with the knowledge. If you do decide to read that, read it with the knowledge that um, it might not be the most feminist work of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then my other recommendation, because I was trying to think of books that had more interesting characterizations of, like, mean adults uh-huh. and i decided upon midnight for charlie bone 
Oh. Um, which is not uh, Midnight for Charlie Bone is about a boy who discovers he has magic powers and goes to a boarding school. Which you don't say is similar to some other books that were coming out at the same time that we won't <laughs> mention. But anyway, J.K. Rowling could never. Um, Midnight for Charlie Bone is um, they're good books, um, but he essentially he can travel. It's been so long since I've read them, but he can interact with photographs. That's his power. Okay. He has this completely terrible grandmother in his life. And it's just a lot. It's a really interesting book if you want like a book about complicated family relationships and, you know, adults who aren't great. <laughs> and they're really fun to read. So I think those are my two recommendations. I, I think I'll, I'll just go ahead and recommend Willa Cather. If you're interested <laughs> in some isolated, isolated um, farms. Yeah, please read My Antonia. It's a really good book. <laughs> it's a lot more feminist than... Um, Aragon. <laughs> it was written 200 years ago, so... All right. Oh, I wanted to ask you a question. Yes. Okay, so I want to I talk about um, our least favorite part, our most okay-ish part, and our favorite part. Okay. So what was your least favorite part? My least favorite part was uh, the way the women were written, probably. <laughs> we're only, we are not very far into this book, and I can already tell that it's going to be an issue. Uh, my favorite part, probably the descriptions of the wilderness, the mountainous wilderness. I, I, I liked those. And uh, my most okay-ish part was... <laughs> Okay, I did get a laugh reading, rereading like the shades descriptions because <laughs> I just it really took me back to when I was obsessed with this character for whatever reason. <laughs> I feel that with the elves. <laughs> okay, yeah, you go ahead. Okay, um, so my least favorite part was the dialogue. Um, it lasts too long and does too little. And my my favorite part was. The really um, fantastic descriptions. I loved. I mean, I already talked about this, but I love the spine. I loved how we see the valley from above as Aragon descends into it, and I like the description of the house. And I also love how ridiculous and dramatic the elves feel. They're just so <laughs> ridiculous. They're great. And then the most okayish part I felt like was Garrow. I felt like after that chapter of just awful dialogue, like that was a more interesting conversation. And I felt like we could have just cut that whole scene with Sloane and had Garrow reacting to that scene of Sloane. And it would have been a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. But it gives me hope that maybe not all the dialogue is going to be that awful. <laughs> all right. Uh, next week, what are we reading? We are going to read... That's a good question. Yeah, we're going to see. <laughs> um, at least chapter three. Um, chapter three is called... Dragon Tales. Ooh. How long is it? Um, 19 to... 19 to 37. And then what's... And I think the chapter be good. after that is Awakening, which is not very long. So maybe we'll read the next yeah, two. Yeah, T for two. I think this is probably when Brom... Yeah, Brom's going to show up. Okay. So let's read those two. Okay. So next chapter, we're reading Dragon Tales and Fate's Gift. Yes. All right. Do we have to sign off? I think so, but I don't know what's a good sign off. I don't know. People don't they usually do their like their little slogan at the end? Yeah. What's our slogan? <laughs> uh, keep it shady. Keep it shady. <laughs> oh God. <laughs>